Welcome to episode 264 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Nuclear is one of the most hotly debated topics on my social media accounts. It is also deeply polarized, at least in Canada. My own view is that nuclear represents drop-in plug-and-play generation capacity that presents minimal disruption to centralized utilities trying to shield their century-old hub-and-spoke model from change. Wind and solar, on the other hand, require considerable re-engineering of a power grid, and the idea of disrupt distributed energy is deeply disruptive to the conservative utility culture, and I suppose you could add policymakers to that. What then are we to make of the Ontario government's recent announcement that it will pursue the refurbishment of the Pickering B nuclear power plant? To help answer that question, I'm joined by Professor Mark Winfield, Head of Environmental and Urban Change at York University, co-chair of the faculty's Sustainable Energy Initiative, and author of the February 6th Globe and Mail op-ed, The Folly of Ontario's Nuclear Power Plant. So welcome to the interview, Mark. Hi, Markham. Yes, yeah, nice to have you back. We've done many video interviews, but I think this is your first appearance on, on the podcast. So Yes. Yes, nice to have you here. No, no, very well, nice to chat. The, okay, so the I think the title of the op-ed kind of gives away <laughs> your position, and and maybe what we ought to do is is have you give us some background, some context uh, for the decision that was made that you took issue with. Yeah, well, uh, in fact, the Globe actually changed the title of the 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 op-ed. My original one was Ontario Power Generation's Nuclear Power Play, but we'll come back to that later on in terms of what's going on here. Um, Fundamentally, what's happened here is the uh, government of Ontario has announced its intention to refurbish uh, the Pickering B nuclear power plant, which is located uh, just east of Toronto. It's actually on the border of Toronto and Pickering on the Lake Ontario shoreline. Uh, there are a total of eight reactors at Pickering, uh, four at Pickering A and four at Pickering B. Uh, two of the reactors Pickering Ray were attempted to be refurbished and that failed some time ago. Um, Pickering B uh, had been assessed as, as for potential refurbishment more than a decade ago. And the conclusion at that point had been that it was completely uneconomic. Um, so this sort of begs questions uh, both about the specifics of the particular facility, because, of course, nuclear power plants don't age well. And if something was uneconomic to refurbish in 20, no, 2009, it's unlikely to be any more economic to refurbish in 2024. Um, there's then a larger set of questions, though, is this is this is just one piece of a larger nuclear construction and reconstruction program that the government of Ontario has been announcing over the last year or two, uh, whose total capital costs, uh, I think, could be conservatively and optimistically assessed in the range of $100 billion, uh, which would make this uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, nuclear construction programs in the Americas or Europe. Wow. Okay, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of shekels. Um, let's go back to your comment about how the the assessment was done previously on Pickering A, and it, they, which was deemed uh, uneconomic to refurbish. Uh, sorry to clarify, there was there's been two stages to this. 
um, there was an attempted refurbishment on Pickering A, and that ended with two of the reactors being refurbished and two of the reactors oh, right. being written off. And right. that ran massively over budget. So in 2009, as the Pickering B plant, the four units there were approaching end of life, there was an economic assessment at that stage of whether it made sense to attempt a refurbishment on them. And the answer at that stage was no, it was uneconomic. And the plant was in fact scheduled to close in 2018. Um, so now we've effectively been through a series of what have been termed life extensions of the plant. Uh, and now a decision to attempt to refurbish it fully uh, sometime through the 2030s at an so, unknown cost at this stage. Right. So if I understand that these are all custom engineered projects and and so the engineering has to be redone, uh, how much of the plant has to be rebuilt or refurbished? Um, almost everything. Um, particularly given that you're dealing with a plant that at this stage will be um, well more than a decade past its actually designed end of life. There has been, so this sort of, Certainly the reactor core, the heat exchangers, um, they're talking about cutting holes in the containment building. Uh, so this is this is a fairly massive undertaking. Um, and it's difficult. The the preliminary studies, which the government announced, were put at two billion. But if we're taking the Darlington refurbishment of four units as a guide, uh, you would come in somewhere at least in the 10 to 15 billion dollar range to actually do this and probably more given the age of the plant we're virtually talking about a complete reconstruction of the plant at this stage there's probably not very much to salvage from what's there it's 50 years old you know uh, i over the course of time i have renovated enough kitchens to know that once you get going on it uh you wind up the kitchen leads to the flooring. The flooring leads to the bathrooms. The bathroom leads to the bedrooms. And next thing you know, you've got an entirely renovated house. And it cost you two or three times what you originally set out to spend. And it sounds like the my my little household analogy uh, maybe has some relevance to nuclear refurbishments. Highly relevant. Um, that certainly on the first round, as they open things up on both Pickering A and Bruce A, uh, that's exactly what they found, is that this this was going to involve a lot more than they anticipated. It took much longer and cost an awful lot more money than expected. Indeed, on the Bruce A refurbishments, they were also only able to do two of the original four on their first try. Um, they're now trying to do all remaining six. So the risk here of, of cost overruns and delays is, is enormous. Um, and there's a larger question, too, given the location of the Pickering plant, which is now in the middle of a densely populated urban area, um, in a place where probably if you were proposing to build a new plant, even the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission would tell you no, um, given you know, there's there's no separation here. You are you are in the middle of a an urban center at this stage in, in 2024. Yeah, I think if I ever travel to Toronto, maybe what I'll do is just stop in Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can you can see Pickering from uh, the beach at Rouge National Park at the mouth of the Rouge River. Oh, it's, okay, it's right on the Pickering um, 
Pickering Toronto border. So this, as I say, this is this is a very densely pop now densely populated urban area. Um, so there's another layer of questions about whether um, there should be a nuclear power plant in that location at all, much less questions of of should it be refurbished. You know, I understand some of the context of this in that back in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of investment in uh, wind, uh, you know, back in the early days before it started to enjoy the benefits of cost curves and costs came down. And uh, I don't know, I, I saw a figure one time of feed-in tariff of $840 a megawatt hour, which is just astronomical, but that's what it was back in those days. And yes, the yep. problem, the problem there is not what I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of, if you got to get in on uh, early stages of technology, and you have to pay a premium in order to adopt it and, and learn it, and then bring the cost down uh, by scaling up, then that's just the cost of playing getting in the game. And I'm okay with that. Um, the problem is political, because at the end of the day, you know, it was a huge, it was a huge controversy. And then the, the government of Doug Ford and the, the conservative government came in, ripped up a bunch of wind turbines and solar panels. And, and the public perception of renewable energy is probably stuck is about 10 years out of date. And um, that has a lot to do with why this government can maybe get away with or contemplate doing nuclear refurbishment. Well, I think that is part of it is that the, the Green Energy Act sort of experience from the late 2000s uh, somewhat poisoned the water in the sense that we ended up paying an awful lot, um, partially because we had a program that was designed around the needs of community-based developers, but was open to commercial developers who could have done wind and solar, even at that stage, at, at vastly lower cost. Um, the situation now, of course, as we know, is that that the uh, costs around wind, solar, um, storage, for that matter, as well, are all it's all in the midst of, of varying degrees of technological revolutions with the cost curves dropping dramatically. Um, the problem is the the government doesn't seem very interested in any of that still. Um, we did have an announcement that did open the door partially on renewables uh, just before Christmas, uh, but it didn't do anything to actually change the overall trajectory here, which is this, this massive play on nuclear. And, and essentially everything else is left marginalized. So you're, you're kind of looking 50, 60, 70 years into the past when everybody else is looking at renewables, storage, distributed resources, demand side stuff, um, it, it looks like a technological step backwards. And, and in a sense, the, the discussion hasn't caught up in Ontario, that the, the universe in that intervening 10 years has changed enormously. Uh, you know, costs on the renewables and distributed side have fallen dramatically, technological performance has improved. And in the meantime, on the nuclear side, we've been watching what happened in places like France, the UK, Finland, and the US, well, in fact, the problem is we haven't been watching where the attempts at new builds especially have, have ended um, not well, <laughs> um, to put it mildly. Indeed, some have not actually reached completion. And where they did, there were massive cost overruns and delays. So we're we're kind of in this weird time warp in terms of, of um where this conversation is at in Ontario relative to other parts of the world. 
Yes. And, and uh, I call them nuke bros. Uh, they wind up in my replies all the time and my threads, you know, making wild claims about once you get over the capital costs, it's, you know, basically free electricity, blah, blah, blah. And of course, nobody ever advances a, a peer reviewed paper or some evidence, you know, some solid evidence to back that up. Whereas I, so my, my, you know, I've tried to keep an open mind on this. I, I mean, I know, you know, I've interviewed you many times over the years, and I know that you're opposed to, for for the most part, for nuclear, uh, I think it's fair to say. And I'm kind of drifting in your direction because I don't think the nuclear proponents have made their case. And I particularly feel that way about small modular reactors. You know, we still, we've got the governments that have bought in on them. Everybody's crazy for, you know, the, the SMR hopium. Um, and yet we haven't had one anywhere in the world, built anywhere in the world. And we're making these huge, I don't know, ex commitments, really. Uh, there's expectations that, you know, oh, that's okay, but, you know, 2030s, uh, or OPG will have one in 2028. I mean, it's only just around the corner. And I'm not convinced that that's the case. In fact, I've interviewed a few physicists who say that's not the case at all. So this is why is this this subject so polarized? Well, indeed, there seems to be this notion that SMR man is going to save us somehow. Um, and of course, the the new scale debacle has has highlighted the fact you know the the problems on the SMR side. Um, I think the reason why this this comes back is that this is a a deeply institutionally embedded technology and industry and it is a creation of government and you know opg i mean is is a provincially owned crown corporation in ontario and like the ontario hydro of old it does appear to have again a very very direct line into the premier's office um and is taking advantage of the situation that we're we're in a place in Ontario where there is no planning process and there is no regulatory oversight. There's nowhere this plan has to go in front of a regulator where the question gets asked, does this make economic sense? Does this make sense as a decarbonization strategy? Uh, where does it sit relative to the alternatives? And and I think OPG is, is taking advantage of that. Um, uh, basically to both secure its its technological preference, but also to fundamentally secure its place, its dominant place. It makes its position in the Ontario electricity system even more dominant than it was. Uh, it's sort of Ontario hydro redux seems to be what's going on here. So so in terms of, of institutionally and policy process, I think that's, that's what's going on here. Um, and I think the the risk here is, of course, we 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 lock in profound costs, risks, technological pathways at a time when we've got these converging technological revolutions on the other side around renewable storage, grid management, DERs, the whole thing. Um, so that's that seems to be what's going on here. Is is it's you've got an institutionally embedded incumbent. Who's, who's taking the opportunity to really secure its position in, in the system. So a couple of observations on my, on my part. And uh, one is, I am shocked uh, the extent to which uh, you would expect that uh, big industry players, uh, policymakers, uh, 
uh, we're talking about deputy ministers and and so on and and politicians, the, the leaders and decision makers in Canada shocked at how shallow their understanding of the global energy transitions. They just are are decades, you know, not decades. That's not that's not fair. But certainly years and years uh, behind where we are today in reality. You know their perception of the the transition, their perception of the technology and the costs and and the risks is 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 behind the times, and that is a serious deficiency in a time of rapid technological change. You, you should be at the at the forefront, not at the back. You shouldn't be a laggard. You should be an innovator, and so that's one that's one thing. The other is in, incumbents, and you you were the one that first flagged this for me. You know, four or five years ago, I think when we first started doing interviews. And and I've come to to think now that there are three three options available to incumbents, like utilities. One pivot to a different business model. So Orsted now does wind instead of oil and gas in Denmark, or you can re-engineer your existing business model, or you can double down on the status quo. And it would appear that if there's not enough momentum in other areas or resistance to the incumbents doubling down on the status quo, that then is why the incumbent is successful. They they're able to resist change. There's no institutional push. There's no market push. There's no technological push, no public push. And therefore, the incumbent wins, wins the battle. And it may not be the best for the province. It may not be the best for the the you know long term future of the utility. But those are the decisions that get made today. Does any of that resonate? Oh, completely. I mean, this is this is the double down of double downs. Uh, um, quadruple we, down. I think we call you know, it. it's a quadruple down in some ways. Yes, it is. I mean, clearly, um, you have certain very dominant incumbents, OPG, and to a lesser extent, Bruce Power, although remember, OPG owns the Bruce site and reactors too, and has also been moving into gas as well, uh, which is, of course, the other shoe in the Ontario electricity conversation. Right. So absolutely, what you're seeing is is a, a an incumbent looking to secure its position and its associated technological preferences. And at the moment, looking like they're likely to be very, pretty successful, um, because there isn't going to be a whole lot of room left or capital left uh, for anything else. Um, everything else is effectively pushed to the margin, um, while this, 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 for lack of a better term, juggernaut proceeds. Uh, so absolutely, I think that is part of what's going on here is is a you've got an incumbent that's definitely not interested in in any revolutions. and a government which is, in our case in Ontario, deeply receptive to those mo no those those notions and and really, you know started out partially in the aftermath of the Green Energy Act, was sort of an embedded allergy to renewables and related things. So in some ways it's it's a perfect environment. If you're if you're an incumbent, um, you've got a receptive government, no structure within which you have to answer any kind of hard questions. Um, what and relatively because of the teardown on the renewable side, 
you don't really have a particularly strong presence of of other voices in the conversation. They they had yeah. all moved to Alberta. <laughs> they much, much to their regret that that didn't yeah. work out hasn't worked out quite so well but that's another story it is indeed and we've we've covered it here at, at energy media but i want to talk about another uh, uh inhibiting factor and, and i'll describe it as system inertia and let me explain what i mean so um according to the international energy agency there are six phases of integration of uh, variable renewable energy into a power grid. Phases one and two are very low penetration, and you can basically, system operators can manage that variable load with planning and, and so on. Once you get to phase three, which is at where Alberta is, by the way, so at 14%, you need to begin to re-engineer your grid. You need to add storage, and you need to add, reform your markets, and you need to you need to invest in new technologies, and there's a whole panoply, demand response, on and on and on. Things that you need to do, and you, as your percentage of variable renewable energy increases as it grows in your in your grid, you have to do more and more in your grid to do things differently. And my take in Canada is that uh, first of all, our grid isn't as bad as the U.S. The U.S. had an old creaky grid that really needed to be to be reformed, and it kind of in a way it's an advantage because now when they're you know if they're doing that. You may as well, you know, integrate a bunch of uh, wind and solar, and and then you can account for it when you as you modernize your grid, you know, because it needed to be modernized anyway. Well, why the hell? Why don't you just put the low low cost generation capacity in there to begin with? In China, the Chinese government, the national government, can just decide that that's what it's going to do, and everybody else will hop to it and get it done. And they'll make the capital available, and they'll change the laws and all of that stuff. It's it's a much easier thing to do when you're both government regulator, you know, all of that. Uh, and Europe, if, if they have political push for it. There's a, there's a political commitment to decarbonization and to doing some of the, to switch rapidly now to renewables to get off Russian gas. So Canada alone is this sleepy old incumbent with, with you know, a, a grid that isn't now that bad. You know, Ontario is, there's plenty of places in, in Canada like BC where I live where the grid is pretty good. And so, the pressure to change isn't really there. And that makes it difficult to get away from old models because people don't change their thinking and the incumbent dominates the decision-making process and the regulator captured the regulator, all of that stuff. And it seems we may, I, th I see this as the first pinch uh, in our shoe. And as we move forward and the, and the world moves to low cost wind and solar, it's going to pinch more and more and more, and it's going to be harder and harder and harder for us to overcome the incumbents, overcome the inertia, overcome overcome a hundred years of you know successful management of the grid. That's my narrative. Does that does that resonate? I think so. I mean, I mean, we have exceptionally embedded incumbents. I mean, most of them are are owned by the provincial states. Uh, you know, BC Hydro, Manitoba Hydro, OPG, Hydro Quebec, Nalcor, SAS Power. You know, yep. they're they're there is in, they're they're embedded to an extraordinary degree and and occupy exceptional degrees of monopoly control as well relative to what you might find in other places. So that that does tend to reinforce this problem of incumbency, and then the additional problem that the extent to which they've networked, they have tended to network north south not east west 
which which becomes a problem in terms of our ability to exploit the large hydro assets, um, which could be very, very helpful in terms of large-scale integration right. of variable renewables. Um, everything's wired the wrong way to do that. So there is there are some very profound challenges there. And how this plays out is is still, I think, a big question mark. Um, you know, it requires a much more agile approach to grid management, which is becoming more and more technologically feasible. I mean, this is this is what at least our smart school students in our engineering school are are all about these days, is writing the algorithms to do precisely that kind of thing. Um, but it's it the 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 incentive isn't necessarily the, the the reaction to the decarbonization electrification conversation is is to in at least in Ontario's case build big, um very simple big and big and dumb, um what was and, you, which is what the system knows right yeah which is what the system knows because it is it is you you're saying introduction you know, you know the notion of distributed resources large scale deployment of VREs you know reconfiguration of grids. Um, into more of a network configuration from a hierarchical configuration is is just completely new territory. And it also does threaten the position of those incumbents because in potentially their role becomes more and more marginal in the overall system. Um, but whether that's where we actually go is is going to be is an interesting question. I mean, do you as grid cost if you get these kind of double downs on high cost centralized types of infrastructure like Ontario is doing, Costs are going to go up on the grid side, and are you going to see more and more defections into behind the meter DER type things? I mean, one of the things come up in Alberta, a different context, but you, know, you have a lot of industrial cogen, which in the face of something like the clean electricity regulations may just pull back behind the fence and stop participating in, in the system. Um, so there's, there's, you know, we, we've, we've haven't, we haven't figured this out and we have incumbents who aren't that keen on changing and the actors who are you know the local distribution utilities you find in Ontario and in some places in the prairie in Saskatchewan or Alberta for example in Nova Scotia you know they're very marginal players they're very interested in in doing some of this uh um but they don't have the kind of power and influence that the incumbents in the form of the dominant provincial utilities have. So it is, it's a huge challenge for Canada. You know, uh, we're well, used well, to very integrated, vertically integrated monopolies, and those are not necessarily that creative. The, uh, we'll close up our interview with a, a discussion of British Columbia, because it was only a few months ago that BC Hydro, which is owned by the BC government and controls 85 or 90% of electricity generation and distribution in the province, came out with its new capital plan and it's going to it it is now uh, forecasting 2% load growth per year. Now that was the load growth that it experienced prior to the great recession, the financial meltdown in 2008. And then so many big industrial plants in BC were decapitated and and out of the market that their demand was flat for 15 years. And now with the electrification of transportation and, and buildings and, and industry and on and on, now they're, they're projecting load growth again. Okay, that's great. Uh, but the important thing here is that they are now once again uh, coming back to independent power producers, First Nations, communities, 
and so on and saying, you're now where we're going to get our, our where our, our generation capacity is going to grow. And so you have here a very big, fully integrated, top to bottom utility that has chosen to go outside and say, we're not going to build it, we're going to buy it, and we'll let the private sector invest the capital, whether it's First Nations or, or, or private investors. And then we'll integrate that into our grid and we'll, we'll make it work with hydro and we'll do all the things, some of the things that you and I have been talking about. But that seems that's far more progressive than I ever expected BC Hydro to be, I'll be honest with you. I, I was very pleasantly surprised when I saw that kind of thinking. And 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 you see that in Quebec. Quebec is is headed down that path as well. It's very, very smart. They're doing lots of wind and solar to work in conjunction with their hydro. So the integrated incumbent can manage this if it chooses. And I imagine in Quebec and BC, some of that has to do with political pressure because the parties in power are dictating that it do that. But in Ontario, that's not the case. So now you've got just one more layer of problems that has to be a problem that has to be solved. Yeah, I would add Manitoba to your list of places doing interesting things as well, because they've they've they're their most recent plan. I mean, a little more gas than I would have gone for, but also a, a very interesting approach of of being much more flexible in their responses to to potential demand growth as well. Um, in this case, yes, there's unquestionably political imp impetus going on as well. I think the situation in Quebec is a little more complicated. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on big things too. Um, but uh, in Ontario, we're quite the opposite. What's, what's happened, as I say, is this kind of back to the future kind of situation where we're asking questions again, well, does uh, the government of Ontario run Ontario Hydro or does Ontario Hydro run Ontario? <laughs> uh and and now you know, is is does opg run ontario or does the government of ontario run uh, ontario and and i think that's that's where we've landed that in effect the province and i'm not sure in dealing with the the current government of ontario i'm not sure it fully even grasps what what's gone on going on here um in terms of the nature of the choices that it's making uh, and I think that's a very important consideration in, in all of this, that that um, it may not fully grasp that there could be other pathways here that it could be considering. I'm sure OPG has been telling it it's the apocalypse if it doesn't do what it tells it to do. And it's not necessarily government that's going to ask to know to push back and to ask hard questions. And I think that's that's part of the this this window of opportunity that the incumbent in Ontario is exploiting very, very effectively. I, I'm going to close out the interview with a, an anecdote, Mark, that I think has some relevance here. And because I, I report so much and very often critically on what's going on in Alberta oil and gas and with Alberta uh, energy and climate policy, I occasionally get drunk emails in my inbox from from fairly from fairly weighty individuals, shall we say, you know, people that are in the news that are, you know, chairing boards or they're, you know, they're advising premiers, that sort of thing. And whenever I get one of those drunk emails, even if I discount for the drunkenness, which is obvious in the grammar and the syntax, the 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 poor quality of the thinking is astounding. Just 
mind-boggling. I could I could go on any old oil bros, you know, Twitter account and find thinking that profound and that insightful. And my I always think when I get those those emails, good lord, these people are advice. They're making decisions. They're advising, mm-hmm. you know, multi-billion-dollar investment decisions or or policy that will affect you know the province over the next twenty years. We're in big trouble. And I think, you know, there used to be this saying that the best and the brightest were were attracted to the, the civil service, to public service, right? And there was a bargain there. You you took a little less money, but you got more security and you and you and you did this not because for for your own personal enrichment, you did it for your country. You did it to give back to your society. And we don't we have now we now have the least and the dumbest. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm really I suspect that they're from what you've said about the the Ford government in Ontario, kind of the same thing ha- that's happening in in Alberta. Yeah, I mean, you know, looking back even a decade ago, our ministers of energy, uh, Mr. Smither and Mr. Duncan, knew to push back on this. They're the ones who asked, "Okay, let's see the co- real cost assessment on a Pickering refurbishment. Let's." see the full cost on a new build nuclear in Ontario and see what that's really going to cost. And I don't think we're dealing with a government that, that you know, we're not dealing with decision makers who know that they can ask those kinds of questions and that they should be asking them. And, and that does have to be, be very, very concerning in terms of, of, I mean, it's a larger set of political questions about how is it we've ended up with political leadership of this nature? Um, that's another conversation for sure. Uh, but it it obviously has to be be deeply concerning um, that you're dealing with governments that that don't ask hard questions, um, could even be a little bit gullible. Um, <laughs> I'm and, sorry, for, I'm sorry for laughing, Mark. A little bit gullible is about the kindest thing you could say about these folks. Perhaps so, but but it it obviously has to raise the, these you know these are these are the downstream consequences that we get these kinds right. of decisions that embed these kinds of risks and costs without having taken a very very good look. And you would have thought, after Site C, after Muskrat Falls, after more than a few other things, that governments would have figured this out by now. That that you need to ask hard questions. Uh, before you commit and and that lesson seems lost on our current decision makers and that that has to be very very worrying about where it takes us well look thank you very much for providing an a a, a calm reasoned academic response to my less than calm reasoned observation about alberta politics uh we appreciate that on the podcast but mark thank you very much it's been a fascinating conversation and uh we will look forward to having you on again Great. Well, thank you very much, Parker.